Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and we are just super delighted that you were able to be here with us. Whether you're here in person, joining us remotely, we're just delighted that you took the time, made the space to engage together with us as we engage uh, with God. We do want to let you know if you are uh, joining us online that we do have one way that we think We've got a lot of extras in it. It's got like online connection card, access to our prayer team, online chat, all kinds of cool stuff, Bible notes there for you. That's it. Uh, onelifeseattle.org slash live. It's our online platform, and it's a great way to connect. But again, at the end of the day, we're just happy that you have found a way to connect with us. So with that, let's pray. Dear God, we give you great thanks for this day and for your presence in our lives. I pray Lord, that we would hear from you in, in the way that we can when we are together, even if we're in different homes. You have brought a way for us to still be together and to hear clearly from you. So we pray um, that as we are together in you, that we would hear from you in that unique space and that you would shape and, and move us in, in that unique way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week three of a sermon series we're exploring an ancient letter known as First Peter. It was written by this guy named Peter. Um, and it's in the New Testament of the Bible, the part written uh, that, that includes when Jesus is born, his death and resurrection, and then the life of the church, uh, and goes all the way into eternity. Uh, and so it's a cool section of the Bible. This is where that's from. Uh, the series is called A Living Hope. And, and we named it that way, one, because it's, it's said in the in this letter, Living Hope, so it's kind of a cool place to take it from, but it's also that we believe that Jesus is alive, right? That Jesus, even though he died, it was temporary, three days later he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, and that, um, so, so there's something living, right? And then there's this hope, and we have this hope because in Jesus' death and resurrection, like, what happened for us is that, that humanity was able to, to have a way back to God. Our relationship with God had been broken and severed. And Jesus, in dying and being resurrected, provided a way back. And so there's hope in that. There's hope that that's for the entire world, not just even humanity, but it's for all of creation. There's something to be reconciled and that God is working to do that and that we're invited to participate in that. And so we have this living hope. And so that's where we got the title from. Now, I, I mentioned that this was written by a guy named Peter. Uh, Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus, so these 12 that followed along with Jesus. But he was also, as we read it, we can, we can tell Peter gets a lot of airtime in the Gospels, the, the four stories written about Jesus' life. And um, so he's pretty well known. Um, and he ends up that he's one of Jesus' close friends. Um, but he's also known... Uh, for being a bit impulsive. Someone who kind of jumps in maybe didn't look what they're jumping into, right? He goes from having the perfect answer to one of Jesus' key questions to in the very next moment, Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan, in response to one of Peter's actions. Peter walks on water, but then sinks. When Jesus is washing the disciples' feet in a, in a, in a way to show them this is how you are to care for each other to serve one another peter says no no lord you can't do that and jesus says well if i don't do this then it's not going to go well for you he says well not just my feet wash all of me right and so peter has this way of like 
he kind of bounces around and he really wants to go for it and he really wants to get it right. He tells Jesus at one point, I will never deny you. And then he does three times. He jumps out of a boat that's 100 yards offshore because he sees Jesus there. He's going to swim to him instead of just ride the boat in. This is a story of Peter that we get in the Gospels, right? That he's kind of all over the place. Sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's really hard. But it's helpful to remember who Peter is, but it's also helpful to know who he became. As we read through the book of Acts, sometimes it's Peter's sort of impulsiveness, we can call it, his ability to kind of wholeheartedly give himself to something that allows him to lead the church in new directions. And he becomes one of the leaders in the church. So here's this amazing, fascinating person and I always want us to remember when we're getting into these letters that there's a person behind it, right? Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they're moving in this person, but, but God also like, picked this person to write these things because they're a specific person in a certain way and they have their own personality and he wanted that to be in there. So I just want that to be in us as we engage with this text. And today we're gonna be looking at 1 Peter chapter three. And, and I'm gonna say... Um, this chapter has two of what I'm going to call nightmare passages for pastors to preach. Um, if I go online and look at stuff, it's like a, yeah, everyone's like big red flags everywhere on, on this section of Scripture. Um, but, um, so we're going to, as Peter would, we're going to jump right into it. Um, but um, I do want to say... Um, as Rich mentioned when we started this, this sort of exploration through Peter, we're not going to hit every single thing, right? We're, we're trying to hit on the main themes that connect uh, some of the, the smaller conversations uh, throughout this. And so um, we're only going to get through the first seven chapters of this, or first seven verses of this chapter. Um, I'm preaching next week, so I might do the rest next week. I might tie it in at the end, but we'll, we'll just see um, how that goes. But the Honestly, in my working on this and praying through this, the first seven were the ones that the Lord really put on my heart. So, uh, but we're going to read the whole thing because it's important to put it in its context. So here we go. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, we're going to read through the whole chapter. The words will be online on the screen. Uh, they'll be on the screen here too if you want to just read along. So here we go. Uh, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. 
On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism now that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So, right out of the gate in this passage, we are in what feels like challenging waters. And I want to ask you, to stay with me as we work through this because I'm probably gonna say some things that are gonna shake how you feel, but I'm gonna try to be like Bob Ross. I don't know if you've ever watched Bob Ross. If you haven't, you should. Bob Ross is this great painter who paints these amazing landscapes in like half an hour. Um, but one of the things that I've always noticed when I watch him is he'll paint something and I'll go, ruined. You've totally just ruined the whole thing. You had this great mountain and then you're gonna paint this cabin and you just smudged a bunch of paint on there and now it looks like a rock or something. But then like 10 minutes later, this little cabin all of a sudden goes pop, and he did it. He like tweaked it and changed it, and it, and it worked. And so hopefully, as we get through this, there might be some spots as we're going where you're like, mm-mm, Greg, no, you didn't. Stay with me, because hopefully it'll come around and you'll go, okay, I can see what you're saying. Um, because uh, this is a difficult section of Scripture. Um, one of the challenges, especially with these first seven verses about uh, wives and husbands, is that it has been used as a marriage manual of a type, and that's the absolute incorrect way to engage with this part of Scripture because it was written to a specific group of people in a specific time, for, in a culture, for very specific reasons. It's not that this is a universal thing for everyone. Now, that doesn't mean there's not truth in there. But it means we have to engage with it in its context to discover what that truth is. And the other thing is that most of us don't know what that context is. And if we do, it's in a, a very kind of technical way. It's like me saying, um, okay, so I know the biomechanics of someone running, doing an approach, and then slam dunking a basketball. I have never done that. You sound surprised, that's odd. But no, I've never done it. And I know the Nerf hoop thing is there, but it's radically different. Um, but 
So there's an experience that I haven't shared, right? And so even if we can understand something kind of on paper, there's a difference between I understand it, I can see it, and I've lived it. And so when we're engaging with Scripture in this way, we have to sort of see past that and say, okay, there's an understanding here that I might not be able to even get into, but I've got to try to figure out what it is, and that's going to help make sense of this. So with that in mind, the first two verses. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, Paul, or Peter uses this phrase, in the same way. Um, and, uh, and when we read this, there should be a, something that goes, okay, what was that same way? There's got to be something he talked about before. And if you're like me, when you're up here preaching this and getting ready for it, you want in that same way to make this a much easier passage to, to deal with. And so you go back excitedly and look at it, and it says, Slaves submitting to your masters. Okay, that feels much worse now. Okay, and I know there's a little bit of lightness to this. I don't take this topic lightly, but, but again, hang in there with me. Um, last week, Ben did an outstanding job of working through the issue of slavery in the ancient world versus the slavery that happened here in the United States, um, that they were different. And I'm fully convinced that Peter would not say any of the things we read in this passage about the slavery that happened in the United States. Um, in fact, a lot of scholars have shifted the way they talk about these passages where it mentions slavery in the Old Testament, and they're starting to say we might need to use words like servant because we are more aligning the word slavery to what happened here in the United States than what happened in the past, and they're so different that it's, it's giving us a, a, an inappropriate uh, idea of what happened in the past. Um, but what I want to say with that is when something as powerful, whether it's good or evil, evil like the slavery that happened in the United States happens, that's the power it has. It can redefine words. It can reshape cultures. And so we need to take that very seriously. We need to look and be able to see the realities of what happened when. And so Ben did a great job last week of talking about how those two were different. And so if you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to it. Um, but the, the basics of it is, is that in, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, uh, there were a lot of people who were slaves. Um, and it operated differently, though. You could buy yourself or work yourself out of slavery. Um, the setup was different. It, 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 you weren't technically owned um, as you were here in the United States. And so there were just some different things about it. Uh, and again, um, I would go back and listen to Ben's sermon if you can. But in this, Peter's getting at uh, some of the levels of suffering and persecution that are being dealt with here because he, he compares it to Jesus and he says um, that Jesus uh, had insults hurled at him and he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And so lots of scholars think from this that what's happening to these Christians is that um, the, the, the sort of persecution they're going through is not one of a physical nature. It's not martyrdom. They're not being flogged and, and whipped and those kinds of things. But it's much more of a, a demeaning verbally kind of uh, state that... Um, maybe they're being insulted and, and, and put down, or maybe their status in society is being, uh, they're being demoted 
in some ways. And so Peter is saying um, in those instances that there is a way to deal with this, but retaliation, specifically retaliation of the same kind, uh, is not the way that Christ took because Christ had a different path that actually was more powerful than the path of uh, sort of retribution in the same manner. And so Peter says, instead, in the same way, don't behave like that, behave like Christ. If you are suffering, and specifically suffering because you're doing good, because you're doing the right thing, well, how does that all tie back to this thing about wives? Well, Peter, again, he says in the same way. So what way? The way of Jesus. Jesus, who submitted himself to becoming a human being, who submitted himself to all that it meant to be human, who didn't consider, Scripture says, his position of equality with God something to be used to put himself over other people, even when it cost him. And so Peter says to wives, these specific wives in this specific place, in this specific time, be like Jesus with your own husband. Peter doesn't say be like this with all men. The Greco-Roman culture would say that's the way women should behave to all men for sure. Peter doesn't say that. And he specifically mentions these husbands who they may not believe in Jesus. And he says there's something here where your behavior might win them over. And it's interesting because we think of it as, oh, he says quiet and gentle and all these things. But what he's saying is you're in a space where you have influence. You're in a space where you can lead, where you can bring them along. And then he goes on to describe some things about what that would look like. He says it's a beauty of character versus a beauty of adornment. It's the beauty of virtue and action, not the beauty in extravagant display. And then he uses a woman of the past to encourage this, and he picks Sarah, who is just an interesting choice because it doesn't match what I think at first read, someone might picture when they're thinking of this person, right, that Peter's talking about. Because Sarah, although she did refer to Abraham as Lord, it didn't mean that she didn't influence Abraham, didn't argue with Abraham, didn't challenge Abraham, didn't call out and correct Abraham. If you read through the entire story of Abraham and Sarah, you will find that Sarah is very much a co, they are in that together, and she is directing just as much as Abraham is. So what then is Peter getting at? I mean, does he just miss the point? No, because what Sarah was, was a person who honestly engaged with God. She laughed at God. She challenged God. She lied to God. She was engaged with God. So maybe that's what Peter is after here. Because it's out of that space of engagement, out of that space of her honesty with God, that she's able to deal with Abraham. That she's able to move with Abraham. That she's able to stay in relationship with Abraham. So it's an interesting choice. Um, And I think it deserves more exploration than we have time for. But that's the beginning of it. Now, In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Peter says, Husbands, in the same way, 
Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So, again, as I'm preparing this, I start feeling really good about some of the stuff we just went through. Right? That feels way better. It doesn't feel like it's, a, it's like a headship thing or it's like a ruling authority of the husband thing. It feels like there's this other way of looking at it, and that feels great. And then, Peter, you said, what? What is the, the weaker partner? Why are you allowed to speak? Well, what does Peter mean? Before we get to that, we have to see husbands. In the same way. There's that phrase again. In the same way. What did that mean? It means like Jesus, we submit. So in submission to your wives, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect. Okay, so that feels good so far. But then he does this thing where he says the weaker vessel. And I have to tell you, there is nothing in my experience of life, nothing, no way, shape, form, experience that would lead me to think that women are a weaker vessel. And I don't think God does either. And I think if the church, church universal, looks at its own history, the church would discover that that's not true. We have women all throughout Scripture that have been the heroes. Miriam, Ruth, Deborah, Rahab, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Phoebe, Priscilla, and that's just scratching the surface. If we look through the church's history, there are these women known as Amma, right? And they're the counterparts of the early church fathers that were called Abbas, and so they're the early church mothers. And there was one named Amma Sarah, or Saint Sarah. She was in Egypt, lived out in the desert seeking God. And uh, one of the stories about her is that there was this one temptation she was dealing with that was so present in her life. She, She said, it's me fighting a demon. And the story says that she fought this demon every day for 13 years. And that when it was the worst, her prayer was, oh God, give me strength. Never once, it said, did she pray that this would cease. Only that she would have the strength. And one account of this battle, this 13-year battle, says that the devil himself had to finally admit that she had overcome him. And that her response to that comment was, it's not I who have overcome you, but my Lord Christ. That is so hardcore. That is so intense, right? And there's tons of other stories like that. I think about my own life. The many women who have mentored and taught me, my grandmother, my mom, family members, friends, women pastors, teachers, my wife Angie and my daughters Gianna and Mariella who teach me every day what strength and courage looks like as they face a world that in so many ways is set against them. Stories I could tell you about friends who I've been with who swam across a big river, not just one way, but then back. Just the strength. I know women who lead ministries. I know women who serve in our church as elders. Right? I've been 
knocked hard by my daughter in the eye when sparring, right? And I, when I was younger, I was like 19. I was in kind of the beginning of my prime. And I, was, I had the opportunity to spar with this gal, and she was a national uh, kickboxing champion. And we were sparring, and I was in the corner, not in a ring, just in the room. And I was basically unconscious, but I was still standing because she was punching me so hard, it was holding me up. No one tell me women are the weaker vessel. It's just not true. So what is Peter doing? Is, again, is he just not seeing something? Or does maybe Peter see something that we're not picking up on? So Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible, he, he translates this passage this way. The same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. Delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages, but in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. Right? And one of the things that I think comes out in this reading when he says, as women, they lack some of your advantages, it's not so much focused on as women because of their nature. It's as women in their place in this world. They lack some of your advantages. The world of God is different. The world of God that is broken into this world redefines that because this world, in this world, we can ask, do women lack some of the advantages that men have? I'd say absolutely. Um, this guy, Peter H. David, is a New Testament scholar. He, there's, a, there's a word in here, gnosis, and it means knowing or understanding, and it doesn't show up in the NIV. And, and so it, this, this passage could also be, uh, when you add that word in there, it says, so husbands, in the same way, being aware, having an understanding, knowing, um, you know, Live this way with, with your wives. Um, but he says the Greek term gnosis has a variety of meanings, but here it is not analytical knowledge or religious insight that is intended, but personal insight that leads to loving and considerate care. This consideration will be expressed by showing honor to your wives as to the more vulnerable sex or more vulnerable gender. And I think that that more gets at what is happening here. Because in the Greco-Roman culture, Women were indeed extremely more vulnerable, more able to be hurt because they were not protected by any systems in that culture. Uh, in her book, A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman, author and scholar Dr. Holly Beers notes that uh, infanticide and exposure were common. And so um, oftentimes, um, if, a, if a child was born and it uh, was not healthy, um, or in this case, if it was a female, it would be uh, killed or left out somewhere to die. Um, and, and she notes that the choice was almost always the father's. Though the act itself would be carried out by a slave or a midwife. See, this is one of the things about power. Right? Here's a person who's going to make this choice about someone else's life and have nothing to do with it. Right? To me, that's the, that's the most cowardice. Right? Exposed infants were placed in baskets or pots and abandoned in a variety of places. These children died or were raised by slavers as commodities. Occasionally they were adopted and raised as legitimate children. Now this was, this was the case um, until Christians showed up. And Christians would rescue these kids and raise them in a, in a healthy community. Um, but along with this, this guy Rodney Stark 
um, he has this book called The Rise of Christianity, and here's a letter um, from a guy named Hilarion to his pregnant wife, and it says, Know that I am still in Alexandria, and do not worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son, which hasn't even been born yet, and as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered uh, of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. I have so many problems with this letter. The problem, just in general, of the idea of discarding a child and, and, and because it was a female. This letter is also written, though, to me like a common day text. Hey, I'm on my way home. If I don't get there, don't worry. So little care for a child and a female. So little care for the wife and this sort of hollow thing. How can I forget you? Well, because you, you're very willing to forget our child. No wonder someone would be worried about being forgotten. We also learned from Dr. Beers that a typical lifespan for a man was 40 years, for a woman 30 years, and largely due to uh, the dangers of childbearing. Um, and that young women married right after puberty, around the age of 12 or 14, and between 10 to 20% of mothers died in childbirth and related complications. We also know, uh, this is Professor Karen H. Jobes, uh, wives are similarly expected to follow the husband's religion. Um, and advice, this is this document written by this guy Plutarch. He instructs a wife, ought not to make friends of her own, but enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. So Peter is getting at so many things in his writing. Um, and one of the things he's also getting at is uh, just the rampant amount of abuse that happened within marriages in the Greco-Roman world. Um, I want to say that there is, there is nothing in this passage of Scripture that would either sanction uh, the abuse of wives, or suggest that women should continue to submit themselves to that kind of treatment, uh, and that the nature of the suffering that Peter is addressing here is vastly different than that. Um, but also to say that men at that time were able to physically abuse their wives with little or no repercussions. Um, and sadly, often today, our world runs the same way. But I want you to know, uh, if you have or are, if you have been or are the victim of abuse of any kind, um, that God hears you and is with you and for you and that it's not your fault and that God wants to help you in that situation and that you should please, please tell somebody. Please get help. Because Peter's comments here actually speak to that. 
because they challenge the powerful, right? And we're going to talk about this in a second, but, but Peter challenges the men who have the power and says, um, almost in a way like, so you're going to say that the woman is weaker? Then uphold, then lift up, then care, right? If you want to treat them that way, then you have to actually do it in a way that is kind. And I know that doesn't, doesn't quite get it, but I think Peter is trying to play with this concept for these guys because what he does is he starts with the most uh, powerless, with the slaves, and then he goes to the next step up, to the women, and then he talks to the men. And it's this sort of op- opposite of power. And we're going to get to why that's important in just a second. Because uh, what, um, again, Karen Job says, she says, why uh, not there? Uh, Peter's exhortation indirectly addresses the issues of physical abuse, like I just talked about. But however, the immediate context makes it clear that the female is also weaker in the sense of social entitlement and empowerment. And Peter teaches that men whose authority runs roughshod over their women, even with society's approval, will not be heard by God. So when we start to read these things against their contemporary background, one of the things we'll find is that the New Testament writers actually subverted cultural expectations by elevating the powerless with unparalleled dignity. See, because again, Peter wrote to the least powerful in society, and then to the women, to the wives, and then to the powerful. There were no other pieces of literature that were written this way other than Christian texts because no one considered slaves or women worthwhile of being written to, especially to give instructions on how to live because it was better to just give those instructions to the masters or the husbands because they're the ones who run everything, so give it to them. There was nothing written this way. Unlike the Greek and Roman writers of the time, Peter directly addresses both slaves and wives, assuming that both have moral responsibility for their own behavior, and that exceeds any system of the time. And the fact that Peter not only directly addresses them, but does so first, right? He addresses the least powerful first. There's no way any other document would have done it that way. But Peter is showing that Jesus turns all this around. And then he finally says, Husbands, you need to recognize that your wives are heirs with you. And they're heirs without you. But this greatly elevates women to a status of equality. And so in this section, what we get It's Peter giving instructions to a specific group of people on how to live in their context and in their situation. And the things that are important to him in this are that people who do not hear or believe in Jesus have an opportunity to hear. And that those who are the least are elevated to places, and I love this phrase, of unparalleled dignity that go beyond the cultures, the context, the expectations, and the structures of this world. The believers involved in this are asked to submit themselves 
to others in ways that will allow this happen, but at the same time, do not compromise their beliefs either. I'm going to steal a quote from Ben last week from Esau Macaulay. And this is talking about slaves, but I think it applies to our section too. When Paul speaks of slaves honoring their masters, he does not mean unquestioned obedience. Drawing on the prophetic tradition he has in mind, behaving in such a way that their masters are drawn to God. This included, according to the Old Testament testimony, periodic refusal to obey. This is not slavery as evangelism. Instead, it is saying that even in slavery, one has some ability to live in a way that testifies to their beliefs. And Peter, at the same time in all this, calls the powerful to behave. So again, looking at this, if we remember the context and we enter into that, what it helps us do is see that this is not a general universal marriage manual or some kind of twisted employee handbook, but it's the revelation of the will of God that all people are to be treated as they should be, that all people would be elevated to un paralleled levels of dignity that exceed the cultural or worldly expectations of any time or any system. And it is the body of Christ, the church, that are invited to be leaders in that and be willing to suffer to that end, to live out this reality that God has given all people the ability to take responsibility for their own moral actions. And that even that is part of the dignity that everyone has been given that exceeds worldly standards. That we all have a voice. That every human being can take responsibility for their lives. Oftentimes we don't even allow people to do that. Now the rest of this section goes on to spell that out. And I wish we had time to get to that. But it basically says that the call of Christians as the body of Christ is to endure suffering that comes as a result of following God's will and doing good. And that Christ's victory over evil empowers those who follow Jesus in this path for the sake of others who don't know God. That the reality of all people experiencing unparalleled dignity in Christ is worth suffering for. I want to call the worship team up. Um, I have a few questions I want to ask you. And then I'm going to, have, uh, I'm going to pray for a second. The worship team is going to close with a closing song and a benediction. The prayer team will be available uh, for you during that time. If there's anything during what we've gone through this morning together that has stirred up something in you to pray about or you've thought about, please feel free to, uh, to, to, to go to the prayer team and, and get some prayer. Um, um, so uh, here are the questions. First of all, who in our culture today is being told they are less than human or a lower, lower version of human. Right? One of the things that it, in this I learned is that um, children were not seen as really being human until they had survived until they were about 13 uh, in, in the Greco-Roman world because uh, part of that was because to, to, to give an attachment to something that was 50% chance it was going to die was too hard. And so their way of dealing with it was to create distance. Um, and so uh, they were seen as less than human. And so who in our culture today is being told that? Or who do we see often that way? Secondly, do you see the church elevating these people to levels of dignity exceeding the cultural expectations and standards? So whatever answer you just put in above, do you see in any way, could be our church, could be any church, could just be Christians. Do you see Christians doing that in the world elevating these people to levels, and I'm going to add in, um, of unparalleled dignity, exceeding cultural expectations and standards.
And then lastly, do you elevate these people to levels of dignity exceeding the cultural expectations and standards? And I guess I would add in there, um, no, I'm not going to add that. Let's pray. Um, Oh, Jesus. Um, This is a hard, a hard moment. Um, Because I know there are people in our world. And sometimes the problem is, is I can't, I have so many blinders in place, I can't see them. I have so many systems I've operated in already that I've been shaped by um, that I don't always see that. And so, Lord, I pray, first of all, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open our eyes to the reality. Lord, your, your prophets had the ability to kind of see sometimes through the curtains of, of systems and other things that often get in our way. So I pray among us you would raise up prophets, God, that can see and that can call out. Um, Lord, and, and I even confess that I already know there are those. Lord, and so I guess I pray we would all move in that direction, that we would all hear and respond. And Lord, when we talk about a living hope, My heart wells up because I think about a world where people get to experience being elevated to dignity. And I think about how many people are just aching for that. And Lord, I believe with all my heart that you have empowered your church, the people who follow you, to go and do that. So I just pray we would. Right? This, this passage talks about, so when the world looks at us, it, it can't say anything really because, because what we're doing is good and they, and they know that. So all the things we do that are damaging, Lord, let's just let those go and, 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 and make reparations and deal with all that. But, but let's move forward. Let's, let's elevate. Let's, let's love well and represent you well. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.